Section 35 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 35. The Word of Jack. Oh, pray do not let me disturb you. Mother Graham drew back from the open door of the living-room with a little affected start of surprise at seeing me sitting before the fire. Her words were courteous, but her manner brought the temperature of the room down perceptibly. She had managed to keep out of my way in clever fashion since the scene of the day before, when she had attacked me concerning the interest taken in me by Robert Gordon. "'You are not disturbing me in the least,' I said pleasantly. "'I was simply watching the fire. "'Jim certainly has outdone himself in the matter of logs this time.' "'Yes, he has,' she admitted, grudgingly, "'as she came forward slowly and took the chair I proffered her. "'I only hope he doesn't set the house afire with such a blaze. "'I must tell Richard to speak to him about it.' "'Always the pin-prick.' the absolute ignoring of me as the mistress of the house. I could not tell whether she had deliberately done it, or whether long usage to dominance in a household had made her speak as she did unconsciously. I made no reply, and for a long time we sat staring at the fire until Dicky's entrance came as a welcome interruption. I went sedately to the door to meet him, although I was so glad to see him that a dance-step would more appropriately have expressed my feelings, and returned his warm kiss and greeting. He kept my hand in his as he came down to the fire, not even releasing it when he kissed his mother, who still maintained the rigid dignity with which she surrounded herself when displeased. "'Well,' Dicky said, manfully ignoring any hint of unpleasantness, this is what I call comfortable, coming home to a fire and a welcome like this on a dreary day. There was a note of forced jollity in his voice that made me look up quickly into his eyes. As they looked into mine, I caught a glimpse of something half-hidden, half-revealed, something fiercely somber, which frightened me. What had happened, I asked myself, with a little clutch at my heart, to make Dicky look at me in this way. I had a longing to take him away where we could be alone. I was glad when my mother-in-law rose stiffly from her chair. "'If you are too much occupied, Margaret,' she remarked icily, "'I will go and tell Katie that Richard is here and that she may serve dinner immediately.' She swept out of the room majestically, and as the door closed after her, Dicky caught me in his arms and clasped me so closely that I was frightened. "'Tell me you love me,' he said tensely, "'better than anybody in the world or out of it.' His eyes were glowing with some emotion I could not understand. I felt my vague uneasiness of his first entrance deepen into real foreboding of something unknown and terrible coming to me. "'Why, of course, you know that, sweetheart,' I replied. "'There is no one for me but just you. "'But what is the matter? "'Something must be the matter.' "'Where did you get that idea?' he evaded. "'I just wanted to be sure, that's all. "'Wait here for me. "'I'll dash up and get some of the dust off in a jiffy before dinner.' 
I spent an anxious interval before he came down, for, despite his denials, I felt that something out of the ordinary must have happened to cause his queer, passionate outburst. When he returned to the living-room, it was with no trace of any emotion, and throughout the dinner, while not so given to conversation as usual, he showed no indication that he was at all disturbed. But I was very glad when dinner was over and we returned to the living-room fire, and when, after a few minutes, my mother-in-law yawned sleepily and went to her room, I drew a deep breath of relief. Dicky drew my chair close to his, and we sat for a long time looking at the leaping flames, only occasionally speaking. It was at the end of a long silence that Dicky turned toward me, with eyes so troubled that all my fears leapt up anew. I sprang to my feet. "'What is it, Dicky?' I entreated wildly. "'Oh, I know something terrible is the matter.' He rose from his chair and clasped my hands tightly. "'I suppose I'd better tell you quickly, dear,' he replied. "'Your cousin, Jack Bickett, is reported killed.' "'Killed?' I repeated faintly. "'Jack Bickett killed? "'Oh, no, no, Dicky, no, no, no!' I heard my own voice rise to a sort of shriek, felt Dicky release my hands and seize my shoulders, and then everything went black before me, and I knew nothing more. When I came to myself, I was lying on the couch before the fire, with my face and the front of my gown dripping with water, the strong smell of hartshorn in the room, and Dicky with stern white face and Katie in tears hovering over me. Dicky was trying to force a spoon between my teeth when I opened my eyes. He promptly dropped it, and the brandy it contained trickled down my neck. I raised my hand to wipe it away, and Dicky uttered a low, "'Thank God!' "'Oh, she no dead! She alive again!' Katie cried out, and threw herself on her knees by my side, sobbing. "'Get up, Katie, and stop that howling!' Dicky spoke sternly. "'Do you want to get my mother down here?' Go upstairs at once and prepare Mrs. Graham's bed for her. I will carry her up directly. Are you all right now, Madge? His tone was anxious, but there was a note of constraint in it which I understood even through the returning anguish at Dicky's terrible news, which was possessing me with returning consciousness. He believed that my feeling for my brother-cousin Jack Bickett was a deeper one than that which I had always professed, a sisterly love for the only near relative I had in the world. This was the reason for his sudden passionate embrace of me when he entered the house, his demand that I tell him I loved him better than anybody in the world or out of it. He had been jealous of Jack living, he would still be jealous of him dead. But as the realization again swept over me that Jack, steadfast, manly Jack, the only near relative I had, was no longer in the same world with me, that never again would I see his kind eyes, hear his deep, earnest voice, all thoughts of anything else but my loss fled from me, and I gave a little moan. I felt Dicky's arm, which was around my shoulders, shrink away instinctively, then tighten again. He turned my face against his shoulder, and gathering me in his arms, lifted me from the couch. "'Oh, Dicky, I am sure I can walk,' I protested faintly. 
He stopped and looked at me fixedly. "'Don't you want my arms around you?' he asked, and there was that in his voice which made me answer hastily. "'Of course I do, but I'm afraid I am too heavy.' "'Let me be the judge of that,' he returned sternly, and forthwith carried me up the stairs, down the hall, and laid me on the bed in my own room. "'Now you must get that wet gown off,' he said practically. "'Katie emptied nearly a gallon of water over you in her fright.' He smiled constrainedly, and I made a brave effort to return the smile, but I could not accomplish it. Indeed, I was glad to be able to keep back the tears which I knew instinctively would hurt him. He undressed me as tenderly as a woman could have done, and wrapping a warm bathrobe over my nightdress, for I was shivering as if from a chill, tucked me in between the blankets of my bed. Then he drew a chair to the bedside and sat down. "'Are you sure you're all right now?' he asked. "'Your color is coming back.' "'Perfectly sure,' I returned, "'and I am so sorry to have made you so much trouble.' "'Don't say that,' he returned, a trifle sharply. "'It is so meaningless. "'Try to sleep a little, can't you?' "'Not yet, Dicky. I returned. "'I am feeling much better, however. "'Of course, the shock was terrible at first, "'for, as you know, Jack was the only brother I ever knew.' "'But I am all right now, and I want you to tell me how you learnt the news.' "'Mrs. Stewart telephoned to me,' he said. "'It seems your cousin gave her, as the next of kin, to be notified in case of his death, and she received the notice this morning. There was nothing but the usual official notification.' I caught my breath, stifling the moan that rose to my lips. Somewhere in France lay buried the tenderest heart— the manliest man God ever put into the world, and I had sent him to his death. Despite the comforting assurance Jack had written me just before his departure for France, that his discovery of my marriage, with the consequent blasting of the hope he had cherished for years, had not been the cause of his sailing, I knew he would never have left me if I had not been married. I think Dicky must have read my thoughts in my face, for after a moment he said gently, yet with the tenseness which told me he was putting a rigid control over his voice, "'You must not blame yourself so harshly. Your cousin would probably have gone to the war even if circumstances had been different.' There was that in Dicky's voice and eyes which told me that he too was suffering. I gathered my strength together, made a supreme effort to put the sorrow and remorse I felt behind me until I could be alone. I knew that I must strive at once to eradicate the false impression my husband had gained as a result of my reception of the news of my brother-cousin's death. So I forced my lips to words which, while not utterly false, yet did not at all reveal the truth of what I was feeling. "'I know that, Dicky.' I returned, and I tried to hold my voice to a conversational tone. He went with his dearest friend, a Frenchman, you know. I had nothing to do with his going. It isn't that which makes me feel as I do. It is because his death brings back my mother so plainly. He was always so good to her, and she loved him so much. Dicky bent his face so quickly to mine that I could not catch his expression. He kissed me tenderly, and, kneeling down by the side of the bed, gathered my head up against his shoulder. 
"'Cry it all out if you want to, sweetheart,' he said, and I fancied the tension was gone from his voice. "'It will do you good.' So cry it out I did, against the blessed shelter of my husband's shoulder, and the tears seemed to wash away all the shock of the news I had heard, all the bitter, morbid remorse I had felt, all the secret wonder as to whether I might have loved and married my brother-cousin if Dicky had not come into my life. There was left only a sane sisterly sorrow for a loved brother's death, and a tremendous surge of love for my husband, and gratitude for his tenderness. "'Try to sleep if you can,' he said. I tried to obey his injunction, but I could not. I could see the hands of my little bedroom clock, and after the longest quarter of an hour I had ever known, I turned restlessly on my pillow. "'It's no use, Dickie,' I said. "'I cannot go to sleep. I would rather talk. Tell me, did Mrs. Stewart's voice sound as if she were much upset? She is an old woman, you know, and she was very fond of Jack.' Dicky hesitated, and a curious, intent expression came into his eyes. "'Yes, I think she was pretty well broken up,' he answered. "'But the thing about which she seemed most anxious was that you should not lose any time in attending to the property your cousin left. I believe he wrote you concerning his disposition of it before he sailed.' I looked up startled. Dicky's words brought something to my mind that I had completely forgotten— I was the heiress to all that Jack possessed, not great wealth, it is true, but enough to ensure me a modest competence for the rest of my life. "'Do you object to my taking this money, Dickie?' I asked, and my voice was tense with emotion. "'Object?' the words came from Dickie's mouth explosively. Then he jumped to his feet and paced up and down the room rapidly for a moment or two, his jaw set, his eyes stern. When he stopped by the bed, he had evidently recovered his hold on himself, but his words came quickly, jerkily, almost as if he were afraid to trust himself to speak. "'You are in no condition to discuss this to-night,' he said, dropping his hand on my hair. "'We will speak of it again to-morrow, when you have somewhat recovered. Now you must try to go to sleep. I shall have to call a physician if you don't.' I lay awake for hours debating the problem which had come to me. I saw clearly that Dicky did not wish me to take this bequest of Jack's. Indeed, I knew that he expected me to refuse it, and that he would be bitterly disappointed if I did not do so. My heart was hot with rebellion. It seemed like a profanation of Jack's last wish, like hurling a gift into the face of the dead, to do as Dicky wished. And yet, Dicky was my husband— I had sworn to love and honor him. I knew that he felt sincerely, however wrongly, that my acceptance of Jack's gift would be a direct slap at him. I felt as if my heart were being torn in two, with my desire to do justice both to the living and the dead. It was not until nearly daylight that the solution of my problem came to me. Then I fell asleep, exhausted, and did not awaken until Dicky came into the room dressed for the journey which he took daily to the city. "'I wouldn't disturb you, sweetheart,' he said. "'Only it's time for me to go into the studio, and I did not want to leave you without knowing how you are.' "'Oh, have I slept so late?' 
I returned, contritely, springing up in bed. Dicky put me back with a firm hand. "'Lie still,' he commanded, gently. "'Katie will bring you up some breakfast shortly, and there is no need of your getting up for hours.' He bent down to kiss me good-bye. There was a restraint in both his voice and his caress that told me he was still thinking of the conversation of the night before. I put my arms about his neck and drew his face down to mine. "'Sweetheart,' I whispered, "'I want to tell you what I've decided about Jack's property.' "'Not now,' Dicky interrupted hurriedly. "'Yes, now,' I returned decidedly. "'I am going to accept it.' I gripped his hands firmly as I felt them drawing away from mine. "'But I am not going to use any of it for myself. I will see that it all goes to the orphaned kitties of the soldiers with whom Jack fought.' Dicky started, looked at me a bit wildly, then stooped, and gathering me to him convulsively, pressed a long, tender kiss upon my lips. "'My own girl,' he murmured, "'I shall not forget that you have done this for me.'" End of chapter 35